This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Nancy Collier. Nancy Collier is a psychotherapist, interfaith minister, author, and veteran meditator. She has a private practice in New York City, where she also leads ongoing groups and workshops on mindfulness in everyday life. She's the author of Getting Out of Your Own Way, Unlocking Your True Performance Potential, and Inviting a Monkey to Tea, Befriending Your Mind. Which sounds true, Nancy has written a new book called The Power of Off, The Mindful Way to Stay Sane in a Virtual World, where she sounds the call for wakefulness, reminding us that we can use technology in a way that promotes rather than detracts from our well-being. The Power of Off provides an essential resource for anyone wanting to create a more empowered relationship with technology in the digital age. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Nancy and I spoke about how many of us are addicted to our smartphones, addicted to checking our emails and being on social media, and how we can recognize that our behavior is addictive and begin to change how we prioritize what matters most to us instead of mindlessly engaging in addictive behavior. We also talked about parenting in the digital age and how to be fierce in setting appropriate boundaries as a family related to the use of technology. And we talked about methods for digital detoxing and the importance of spending time in silence and stillness to explore the depth of our being and not only be immersed in the noise of our monkey mind. Here's my conversation with Nancy Collier on waking up from our addiction to technology. Nancy, as a practicing psychotherapist in New York City, I'm curious to know right here at the outset, what birthed your passion in understanding how technology is affecting us in our contemporary life? Well, what I was seeing in my practice, and not just my practice, but really everywhere in my home, in with my friendships, was that people were walking around in kind of a chronic state of anxiety. And in what I call twired, a state of being twired, tired and also wired. Uh, exhausted, fundamentally exhausted, and also amped up and anxious. And, you know, I was seeing in my practice that it's standard operating procedure now to bring your phone in and leave it on. In the one hour a week that you have to finish a thought, to have some silence, or if, you know, someone had a big job, they felt they couldn't miss that hour to be reachable. 
And I, I really was just becoming more and more uh, curious about what was happening to us. Probably the inception, though, of the book was a moment maybe six or seven years ago when I had just joined Facebook. And I remember it so well where I read a post from a dear friend of mine, a grown woman, about 50, and she had posted, uh, just uh, got up early, had a great morning bike ride, and finishing it off with a refreshing acai juice. And I remember that moment having this sense, I have no idea what's going on. I literally don't understand at a very primal level. <laughs> I don't get why she would do that. And it wasn't even a judgment with it. It was just this sense of fundamentally not getting it and also realizing that our lives were in, in, a, in a pattern of change that we probably could not even fathom, that that would be a reasonable thing to do. So, you know, the, all these components came together. I live in Manhattan, and I've, I love community. I love to meet people at jury duty. I love to meet people at my kids' you know, recitals and whatever it is on the subways. Well, that's all over. You know, that, that whole part of life is done. Everyone is in their device, as we know. It's so much so that I probably jump out of the way seven or eight times a day on the street now to avoid being bumped into. You know, life is changing, and and I'm fascinated by how it's happening, and if there's a way to find some well-being in the midst of it. Okay, now I just want to make sure that everyone's tracking with you. When you told this story six or seven years ago, when someone said went on a great bike ride and had this special kind of juice, your astonishment was that somebody would think that their personal moment-to-moment, -moment, what they're eating and doing would be of interest to lots of other people, that they would take the time to post it? Why did that moment shock you? Well, it's funny that you should follow up on that, too, because I was sharing that with a millennial, a person, he was about 27, and he had no idea why that experience would have started my book. So it's your question, follow-up, is perfect. Um, the, the feeling in that moment was not understanding why, A, she would want to do that, why posting that to a public audience would bring her any kind of sense of validation or uh, meaning, and also, yes, that she could imagine that that would be interesting to anyone, even her mother. <laughs> you know? There was just bafflement on both fronts. What we're seeing, I mean, it's kind of paradoxical if you really look at it, because on the one hand, we're seeing this incredible kind of narcissism, this incredible kind of everything I do, you know, every every cinnamon latte I, I drink is is brilliant. And at the same time, though, we're experiencing, we're you know, we're designing these knee rooms where the temperature is our temperature, the, the the music is our music, and so on. But at the same time, we're experiencing ourselves as a kind of vacuum, so that we don't feel any sense of self worth unless that is uh, publicly validated, and we're also becoming more and more fearful of spending any time with ourselves. You know, a lot of my clients 
they describe that the scariest time of the day is when uh, they're going to bed at night and after the devices, if they are ever off, when they turn off and it's just them there, that feels like a death now. And, you know, it's an interesting time because you see now people are not processing their own experience inside themselves. So, for example, you might be, I don't know, walking on the street and a woman has a stroller and you open the door for her. And you have that just sort of that shared sweetness of an act of kindness. And pre our addiction to technology, we might have walked down the rest of that street and processed that with ourselves. We would have owned it. It becomes kind of a cellular experience. We might change a little bit as a result of it, but it seeps in. But now what we'll do is, you know, we'll post immediately, we'll post, you know, hashtag gratitude, hashtag stroller sweetness, whatever we put out there. And and we wait, in a sense, for the meaning of it or what we take from it now to come into this empty vesicle. So it's it's a kind of funny time because it's it's on the one hand all about us, but on the other hand, there's nothing there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in your opening comments, you talked about how human community is being replaced by this online community, but there's also a gap in the fulfillment of this need we have to connect with each other. Maybe you can say more about that in terms of this sense of our longing for in-person community and what online community is and isn't delivering. Well, there are a lot of studies now that show that the less time we spend face-to-face, the more depressed we are. So there is a reality to this um, missing component in our lives, and I hear about it all day long. We've sort of been sold this mythology about technology that the more we connect, you know, the more connected we'll feel. And that's actually proving to be false because what we, what, while our our world is on this incredible course of change. The fundamental things we need to feel well and feel grounded um, have not changed. They have not changed. And so what we're seeing is we kind of, we, we grabbed for all the, the goodies that technology offered. And my experience is that we've reached a tipping point now where All the things, you know, supposed to make life easier, supposed to make life more connected, supposed to make life more free, because, of course, we're working remote with our Trojan horse uh, devices. And all these things are now starting to be false, and people are starting to, to feel that. So there's right now we're at a really important point where we're looking at, is it working for us? Is this the way we're using it, the way we're using it? Because, again, technology is not doing any of this to us. We're using it in a way from our less evolved self. And is it working for us? Uh, We are feeling more disconnected, despite the fact that we're sending, you know, uh, 130 texts a day. We are feeling overwhelmed with the amount of tasks that we have to complete just to keep up with the technology that is supposed to make life easier. You know, I don't need an app to put on my pants. You know, <laughs> I, I that 
just don't need it. I don't need to flush my toilets, you know, from the road. (laughs) And all these things that we can do, right, do we want to do them? Are they helping? Is it making my life truly freer? Or does having my phone in my house that my boss can call me on mean that I'm available all the time? These are questions really coming to the table now. Now, you called our smartphones these Trojan horse devices. What did you mean by that? So once the device gets into your house, right, it takes over. When, when young people go to job interviews now, the expectation is that they will be available 24-7. And if you're not, then they'll find someone that is. So the device gets in there under the premise of being uh, making you free, but actually it's, it's golden handcuffs. Now we have to be available. When somebody texts you, you know this, the assumption is you're getting it right then and you will be answering it right then. So it's not just our devices that are never off. We're never off. We're never allowing our nervous system to to quiet down, to be in silence, to be in quiet. And we need that. The truth is we need that. It's not just from work that we need that. We actually need spaces where we're not hyper-focused. People say we're becoming um, unfocused. I think we're becoming hyper-focused. We're never not focused on something outside of ourselves. And in order to let the system rest, we have to be. Now, you share in the beginning of The Power of Off a startling statistic. At least I was startled by it. And here it is. Most people now check their smartphones every six minutes or approximately 150 times per day. I was stunned by that. Yeah, there's statistics saying it's down to every five minutes now. So almost about 190 times per day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And... You talked about how we're in an addiction to technology. You said in your comments here in this conversation, before we became addicted to technology. So is this an addiction? Absolutely, yes. I say that. You know, people often ask me the question, will our kids grow up to be addicts? And I laugh because we're full-on addicts right now. It's considered normal, and it's in Korea, but but still, you know, it's, it's coming our way to wear diapers in the gaming club, so you don't have to be bothered with your bodily function. Oh, but you're kidding me. No, 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 no. And the average person now, one in three people would give up sex with their partner um, rather than their smartphone. Uh, 50% of people would rather give up their sense of smell than their smartphone. Um, So this is not kidding around stuff. The, The only thing, though, Tammy, I would say there are a couple fundamental differences about this addiction that makes it, uh, I would say, even more challenging to address. And, and first of all, it's, it's more of like an eating disorder than it is a drinking problem or a drugging problem because, again, we have to find freedom in technology, not from technology. We have to find a handshake here with it. We can't become abstinent. It's really not an option anymore. Even in the caves, they have Wi-Fi now. So what I would say is different and and troublesome about this addiction is that we've all drunk the Kool-Aid. You know, we're all in. We're in. And um, the other piece is that 
other addictions uh, take you outside the club. They make you an outsider. You're excluded from normal society. Well, as we know, this makes you an insider. The more you can talk about your apps and talk about your upgrades and on and on, you know, you're right there at the genius bar with your sparkly cape. This makes you a <laughs> So this is troublesome because it doesn't have the consequences that uh, most other addictions, I would say all other addictions have. Okay, so let's say, though, Nancy, someone's listening and they say, look, I'm not sure I'm an addict. Is there a, a litmus test to know if I have this, you know, you're comparing it to an eating disorder? Do I really have it? How do I know? Well, there's some there's some standard questions that we ask about addiction, and, and, and I'll go through those, but I would say to that person, it's not so, it's not so important what label we put on it. It really isn't. What's important is if there is something in you that says, hey, you know, I'm just not that convinced that the way I'm relating with technology is working for me or or perhaps producing a life that at the end of it I'll feel, yeah, that was that was a really good way to use that life, you know, on Facebook and Instagram and Snapchatting. That that was good. I, I'm proud of that. Or my relationships really benefited from that. If there's some inkling in you that you want to healthify or um, moderate your relationship, then, then, then you need to look at it. It doesn't matter. But I will say, if you want to know if you're an addict, I would say, is your reliance on technology increasing? Do you experience withdrawal symptoms when you're not able to use? Are you continuing to use technology despite knowing that it's causing impairment in your work, your health, your social or family life? Is your life increasingly revolving around technology? Have you given up activities you used to enjoy to be able to use technology? And are you lying about your tech use, the amount of it? If one of those is true, it's of concern. If two of those is true, you're probably an addict. If three is true, you're definitely an addict. So ask yourself, you know, if, if, if two or three of those are the case for you, then you might not even realize what you're giving up in service to your addiction. Mm -hmm. Now, the way that I knew that I had an addiction to my smartphone was that at a red light or at other moments when I'm driving, I would check my smartphone. And I tried to do an experiment for a period of time with a friend where for two weeks, neither one of us checked our smartphone at all while driving red light. Neither one of us could do it. And I thought, okay, mm -hmm. this is it. And what I'd like to understand more, because I know that you've really looked into this, from a neuroscientific perspective in terms of what's going on in my physiology that says I'm stuck in traffic right now, the cars aren't moving, this is a good time for me to see if I've gotten any interesting new emails or what's happening on my favorite news site. What's happening inside me that I am so uh, wanting and needing to pick up my phone in those moments? Well, it's it's a great question. Um, I'm sure that there are neuroscientists that can speak precisely to the chemical release that's happening. 
but you could look at it this way. We, we all have a kind of reptilian brain and it's the most primal part and above fear and survival, there is this kind of, um, it's like you can think of it as an inner five-year-old and that five-year-old wants pleasure, wants distraction, wants, uh, whatever is immediately going to satisfy the reward center in our brain. So uh, dopamine, when dopamine is released, which which happens with technology, um, it gets addicted to that release, to that, that release into the reward center directly. And it's not, it's not rational in the sense of it's not like we're going to get anything, you know, from that email that is, actually important it's it's kind of like a lottery brain that the fact that there's a possibility of something and it serves our distraction our great need to check out of the moment and it serves this sort of it's like a hit of pleasure that's coming out of the brain in that moment it's got some oxytocin going it's got dopamine so it's like any addiction it, it hits the reward center even if it's not actually rewarding and it's a complicated process because, you know, for time immemorial, we've been trying to get out of the present moment. We've been trying to not be where we are, kind of our wiring. And unless we start to develop uh, a more evolved self or some awareness, um, that's our kind of base, our most base instinct, to not be here. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're seeing. That's really what you're seeing when we when we're... Uh, checking at the at the red light. Mm-hmm. Now, let's say someone wants to use this pattern that's in their life, this addiction, whether it's to checking their email or to social media, whatever it might be, really as a way to quote unquote wake up, to become more present in their life, to observe themselves, and to go through a transformation process. How do you recommend somebody approach that? So that's the thing. I mean, that's where the optimism is. That's what's so exciting is that we can take this thing that can seduce us into kind of an entertained sleep. It can really um, pull us into unconsciousness and we can flip it and actually make it the catalyst for awareness. So it starts very simply. We, we start by um, setting the intention to get curious about our tech use and what's happening inside us. And again, we can't bring judgment into this because it doesn't help. So we just start out with a kind of attitude of curiosity of, wow, what is my relationship with technology? And from there, what we start to do is we just, we get our inner colander out, kind of our mind colander, and we start to catch all of the thoughts and all of the times that we get that impulse, ooh, you know, I've got 10 minutes. I could shop for shoes. I could, I could, I could go on, you know, Zappo. I could get something. We catch it before we actually type in Zappo. Or we have a thought um, on public transportation. I could check my email. Catch the thought separate from actually indulging the thought. That's the very first and probably the most important part of it. We start with an intention. I want to see if I can get some control here of 
how I'm using technology. So let me see how many times in an hour, in, in 10 minutes, I have that impulse. So that's number one. Number two is, you know, we, we start to use technology's impulses as a way of getting to know what's happening where we are. So the, the thought comes up, you know, I've got 10 minutes until the movie, uh, you know, I could, I could make that plane reservation right now. Well, what would I feel, what would I have to feel if I didn't do that right now? If I just stayed with myself in sort of this open space, I don't have anything to do, right? What would I have to feel? Or what am I feeling right in this moment that's actually causing me to want to distract myself? What's this moment like? So again, the impulses, rather than diving into them or not even diving into them, actually being collapsed into them, so we just act them out as soon as they arrive, they become these um, pointers to say, well, wait, what's happening right here that that appears? And then we've radically changed. Then we welcome them because, oh, right, you know, uh, wow, what's happening here that I want to go there? What would be your picture, if you will, if you were to draw one, of a life in which our relationship to technology is healthy and balanced? I mean, you gave the example of eating disorders, and someone could certainly describe what a healthy relationship with food might be like. What would be a healthy relationship with technology? What would that look like in your view? In my sense is that that's going to be an individual um, case-by-case answer. So, for example, for myself, I knew that email was a problem for me. So for me, it's never, you know, once an addict, always an addict, I would say to some degree. Um, So what it means is that I stay uh, fiercely mindful of how often I check. So I allow myself to check in the morning and I allow myself to check once in the afternoon and then in the evening. And, you know, that it's the, the, the craving for it certainly has changed, but that I am making choices about how I want to live my life. At the same time, when I'm in my car, I'm using the GPS because I don't have any sense of direction. And when I am at my daughter's concert, I am not using the phone. I am actually directly experiencing that. When I'm walking on that country road, I am feeling that breeze. What, what, what makes, to, to my mind, and it's a great question, a healthy relationship with technology is that it's allowing you to directly experience your life. It's not in the way of that. Because I think... If we really boil down what's most insidious about this addiction is that, you know, there's all this talk about mindfulness and and the buzz, but, not even and, but, the way we're living our lives is actually um, kidnapped from the present moment. If we're not staring at the device itself, so that we don't, we're not tasting the apple, we're not feeling the breeze, we're not in the conversation with the friend, we're actually completely distracted from it. If we're not doing that, then we're at the art museum taking selfies of ourselves looking at art 
so that we can post them as a cultural person who goes to the museum and build our brand, right? So we're not in the experience. And if we're not doing that, we're, we're at the concert photographing the concert, videotaping it, so later we can show our friends, look, I was at the concert. I got, you know, 64 gigabytes of iPhoto memory, but I got no lived experience, got no direct experience of life. So a healthy relationship, the balance is on being present, actually experiencing your life as you're living it, and then using technology as a tool for whatever whatever it's helpful for. You know, if it's taking a, a screenshot of something so you can send it to your carpenter when so he can measure the, you know, the floor module there, great. It's super helpful. But that you, for yourself, are deciding, I'm in my life as it's happening. That, that to me, is the key. And you have to decide that. Every person has to decide what that means for them. Now, you said that you yourself were an email addict, and so that once an addict, always an addict. You now check your email, you know, on a whole morning, afternoon, and evening instead of, you know, 10 times an hour. But that you had to work with that craving and that it changed over time. So tell me, how did you work with the craving and how did it change? So... I set an intention. You know, one day I walked into my house and I walked past my kids and I think I said a perfunctory hello and I went running to my email. And, you know, it's not like I'm expecting something from Obama. You know, it's not like anybody, there's <laughs> nothing, nothing coming in, you know, that is important. But I had, a, I had an awakening in that moment. Maybe it was a look in my daughter's eyes that this is just not okay with me. It's just not okay. And we have to get to that place inside ourselves where something is askew here. What is primarily important to me in my life uh, is not in alignment with what I'm paying attention to and where I'm putting my time and energy. And where we put our time and energy is what we're saying matters. And these two are out of alignment. So, I, I'm pretty disciplined, so I just decided, you know, I, I think that it's unreasonable to be checking every half an hour, and for me, it feels balanced, you know, around each meal to kind of see what's happening. That feels for me, and sometimes I don't need the lunch check, um, but it's not like I'm, I'm saying I don't still feel that, ooh, you know, I could check, maybe something interesting's come in or what have you. But for me, that feels like enough. I get enough of a hit from that. And gradually over time, it just my allegiance changed to uh, what is really important to me. And I know that for me, I need to do it those few times in order to support what's really important in my life. So it's it's really a conscious decision that while I would love to check 512 times a day, that is not supporting what really nourishes me, which is which is to be present in my life and not thinking about what might have come in. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs 
and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now, back to Insights at the Edge. Now, you mentioned, Nancy, your children walking past your kids, the wake-up moment and realizing you were rushing to check your email instead of relating. And I think a big question for any parent is healthy technology use within the family. And I'm wondering what you've discovered about that in terms of best practices, especially with children at different ages, and what you would recommend to parents who are trying to navigate this. Well, I offer a big hug to all of us. That's what I say, a big, you know, compassion-filled, this is really tough stuff. This is no kidding around tough stuff. And uh, the dialogue is happening now. We are learning what works. We are trying, you know, all of us to figure out how to create a healthy family environment with generations that have never known anything different. So one thing I can tell you that I've noticed with my little one is that when she was allowed to uh, start swiping and start playing on her sister's phone, because I have a teenager as well, when that started to happen within one week, Tammy, her imaginative play stopped. Within one week, she stopped uh, having, you know, turning the turning the toilet paper into, a, you know, a Barbie and all that creative stuff that her mind just generated stopped and she just wanted to get on. So I saw it so firsthand. And, of course, then I just stopped uh, access. I just cut the access. Um, but I see the power that this technology has to interrupt our self-generative spirit, whatever that is, our our ability to not be passive learners, not do what the app tells us to do, but actually create. So that's the first thing I would say is just this is powerful stuff, stuff, and we really have to be respectful of the power of this. One thing that I'm working on with my teenager, because I call this an addiction in part because trying to get her to put her device down, it's no different. You know, I've worked in lots of different facilities as a, as a therapist, and it's no different than an addict. The, the rage that comes up and the agitation and the, you know, this is like getting a crack addict off their crack. So what I have really been working with her, first of all, just have, having to be fierce just having to say there are times in the day and there are times in the summer where, you know, you take a month off where you just have to say no. You just have to say no. And it's not easy and it's not a pleasant process. These kids, their academic life, their social life, their logistical life, every aspect of their life takes place on that technology. So they, they feel they're being cut off from their life source when you remove that. Here's what I'm trying to do, and, and it's an experiment. Uh, I'm being honest with you. I have no clear-cut answers here. The, the evidence is coming in. But is to keep 
our children conscious of how they feel when they're using as much as they're using. So that means that when my daughter takes July off, I make a lot of effort to have her notice the difference in how that feels when she's with kids that are not texting and Snapchatting and Instagramming while they're with her. How does that feel? How does it feel when you don't have to check your phone every three and a half minutes? Do you feel calmer? So what frightens me is the day where that sense of agitation and disconnection and alienation and and anxiety becomes the norm. I still have her very much conscious that when she comes home from a friend's house who where they turned off the technology, she says, wow, you know, it really felt like I was with that friend. That's the best that we have right now is to keep them conscious of the difference between what that feels like and it feels like to be a friend who, while you're on the date with them, is on their phone the whole time. I want to break it down a little bit further because you mentioned that you have a teenager but also a younger child as well. In the beginning of a child's life, do you think there's a period of time and up until what age when perhaps having no access to technology, I don't know if you would include television and the idea that sometimes people use technology as a babysitter, you know, watch this, you know, YouTube clip or watch this movie. So what do you think the very beginning of life and then how much technology as a child ages do you think is reasonable? Well, the American Pediatric Association has said no technology before two. I would say bump that up to four. I just don't think that they need... Television has a different effect on children. It just has a different effect. They can't take it with them everywhere. And it's not that addictive, interactive stuff that that makes them so wild for it. So I would say there's no reason for a child to be on the phone when they're under the age of four. There's just no reason. What I will say, though, however, is that... I don't want to judge any parent. You know, sometimes a parent just needs uh, a break, just needs a break. And in the past, you know, we would put that child in front of TV. Well, so right now we hand her the iPad. And you know what? That's fine. That's completely fine. This is not black and white. And sometimes what the what the parent needs is is really what needs to be honored. What I would say is it, it's take, it takes a long-range approach. We need to think about your child should not have, when your child is starting to do homework, right? So the, the child who turns five or six, maybe the child gets a half an hour of, of uh, playtime with learning apps for, you know, every day, half an hour, 20 minutes, something like that, because we can't keep this from the child. And um, the more we turn it into kind of, again, something that that is, is prohibited, the more wanted it's going to be. So we're trying to build a kind of normal, healthy relationship with this. What can it teach you? What are the good parts of technology? As a child goes into their, you know, tweens and teens and they're doing some homework and that kind of thing, the phone has to be removed from them when they're doing anything that requires their focused attention. 
the, the, that's part of the problem. It's not ADD. We're not creating ADD, but we're creating a situation where these kids are multitasking at such a level that they're actually not able to do the work that they need to do. So the phone has to be removed when anything is being done like homework or anything required like that, turning off the notifications, turning off all the rings and chimes, and just staying with one device, the computer. So I would say that is absolutely critical. And the other thing is to really have a family conversation about this. This has to be the family problem. And there has to be a meeting, many, many meetings, as we have done in our family, about how is this impacting us? You know, the fact that we're screaming all the time about this. Are we okay with that? In service to the family uh, community, in service to the peace of the family, this has to be limited, the time. So, you know, she gets, our daughter gets, you know, a couple hours at night after the homework is done and, and things like this that are reasonable. But they've been hard fought, violently fought for. <laughs> um, so we're no different than any other family. It, it's just the commitment to a kind of family environment. Um, it, it has to be rigorous. It just has to be rigorous. There are no easy answers on this one. Now, in your book, Nancy, The Power of Off, The Mindful Way to Stay Sane in a Virtual World, I thought some of the most interesting sections came in the final third of the book, where you're really looking at how we can connect to awareness and not be so identified with our thinking mind, and how our increased use of technology actually increases the activity and identification with our thinking mind. And I'm going to read this one quote from the book because I really liked it. And here's what you write. You write, in the Buddhist tradition, there's a saying that the mind is like a wild monkey that's locked in a cage, drunk a bottle of wine and been stung by a bee. If that's what the mind was like before technology, then on technology, the mind is a wild, locked-up monkey that's drunk two bottles of wine, chased by a shot of scotch, and been stung by a whole swarm of bees. And so I, I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about how is it that our use of technology has made our monkey minds more crazy monkey? <laughs> well, any of us who use technology know that the feeling when we've used technology is that our mind is amped up, right? It's been fed. The, the food of the mind is information, entertainment, stuff, you know, stuff that the mind can fix and problems the mind can solve and um, contents, contents, not context you know, contents. And um, these are the munchies for the mind. So technology steps in, and I think this is really one of the biggest problems that we're facing, is that technology um, enthrones the mind. It makes it master of our universe, which is what it wants. So we, we give the mind data. We give the mind, you know, travel plans, all this stuff to 
do. The mind likes to do. And technology is all about doing. It's not about being. Being, in a certain sense, is the enemy. It's what's feared. It's the cessation of the doing. And technology feeds, again, our brand, our identity. Who are you? Who are you? Are you the kind of person that? And it's it's like amphetamines for our identity, not just on social media, but in a generalized sense. We're always announcing who we are, who we are, this this small self, this ego self, if you will. And so we're feeding that more and more, and this technology-soaked mind is telling us what we need to live a satisfying and good and nourishing life. And it's just the wrong, it's the wrong source. It's the wrong, it doesn't have the wisdom of the heart or the gut or the soul, whatever you call it. So part of what, you know, I work with people on is, again, finding a way back to the place of stillness inside ourselves because ultimately we can't have any kind of abiding well-being or any kind of uh, grounded calm if we're always trying to outrun ourselves, outrun being, right? Because we just, you know, we're chasing yet another thing, another thing, another Wikipedia page, another app, another... Um, whatever game we, we've got going on. And um, the feeling underneath it is, if I stop, if I just sit in the quiet or meet myself without supplementation, then I'll cease to exist. That's what the mind tells us. It tells us, if it's not me, the mind, you don't exist. And, you know, when you do practice, you know, part of what you discover blessedly is that under all the doing and under all of the hats that we wear, I'm a this, I'm a that, or whatever it is, is this presence that is reliable, that is there, is there, it will catch you, grace will catch you, but, but we can't know it. If we're just if we're just filling it up with more stuff and more data and more fear that if we stop we'll die. Mm-hmm. Have you made it a practice? And do you suggest that people try things like, you know, leaving their smartphone at home when they go for a walk or things like that? What do you find uh, yes. works for people? Those kinds of suggestions. So in the detox. I talk about some of these things that you can do. You don't have to do the detox to do some of these. This is a section at the end of the book, a digital detox program that you offer. People might not be familiar with that, but at the end you offer a 30-day detox. But you can share with us what some of the essential practices are, regardless of whether you go through the whole 30 days. Absolutely. And, And it's not really, it's absolutely not mandatory to go through the 30 days. One of the things that I suggest is, just what you just said, is every day to do something, wander like a happy dog, go somewhere and don't bring your phone. Remember what it feels like to not have the, the device in your hand. And it's important not just that it, it, it you know, be in your bag, right? Not that you're not holding it on the street, but actually do something that is 
um, totally separate from that. So you re-experience yourself and maybe some silence. Another thing that I suggest that people do is the first half hour of the day, they don't use. It's very hard for many people to do this one. So then if it's impossible, try 15 minutes. And in that time to do some kind of anything that connects you with your body. Because one of the things as we become more and more identified with mind is we become really disembodied. We're like little heads walking around. You know, where our attention is, is who we are. If it's in this app, if it's in this game, if it's in this, whatever it is, we don't we don't feel our bodies all the way down to the ground. So maybe it's just that you do some stretching in the morning or maybe you do, you know, a, a body scan or you do some yoga or what have you. Before you bump up into the mind and, and spend the rest of your day, you know, outrunning yourself basically um, into the world of content, um, find the place in your body that is just present. And in that 15 or 30 minutes, whatever you can manage, try and set some kind of intention for what is important to me today, the life that I live today, what do I want it to um, express? Maybe there's a word, maybe it's kindness, maybe it's uh, excitement, whatever it is, But, but, but make it a kind of conscious process of what kind of day do I want to make happen today? And similarly, at the end of the day, try and not be on technology the last hour, if it's possible. That's not just powerful for sleep. I mean, there's tons of research about how that impacts sleep. But it's also important about closing the day with some sense of, again, naming what is important to me and what kind of life I want to live and processing the day and kind of going through what was important. You don't have to do it the whole hour, just five minutes, but actually not being up in the head the last hour of the day. Come back down below the shoulders at the end of the day as well, like parenthesis. So some of these things, and then some very basic ones, just don't use while you're eating. Taste the food. Just do one thing at a time. If you're taking a walk in nature, turn off the phone. Turn off the phone altogether and put it away. If you are sitting at a meal with a friend or having a drink with a friend, don't put the phone in between the two of you. Put it out of sight. These sort of little behaviors make such a difference. If you're ordering a coffee, you know, from the deli man, Don't be texting while you're actually doing that. Little things to start paying attention to what's happening right here, right now. Now, you mentioned not having the phone out on the table when you're with a friend. And in the book, you talk about how there are actual studies related to this about how just even the appearance of the smartphone on the table affects people during their conversation over a meal. Can you talk about that? How does that affect us? Because I've, yeah. no- I've noticed that. Yeah. Absolutely. And we've all lived it. You know, we don't, we don't have to even go to studies, but the studies show conclusively that the level of intimacy that people experience when the phone is on the table is decreased. And what, how they report the conversation afterward is that it was less close that they felt less nourished by it. 
um, just by having the phone. It doesn't even have to go off. So it doesn't have to ring. So what I would say is that, you know, again, do we want to be mindful? Do we want to live conscious lives? What are you saying right there by putting the phone there? What you're saying really is you're not enough. You're not enough to that friend sitting right in front of you. You're saying something else might come in, something maybe better, something more interesting, something about just us is not enough. And that message is very, very subtle, but it's people are very sensitive to that. And it also prevents you from really landing. You know, we all know this. Something really magical happens when two people really show up and are present with each other without distractions. And that is that can't happen with just the threat of something coming in, just the promise, I guess you could say, of something coming in. We can't really land with each other, really arrive. And, and the mystery and that sort of surprise and spontaneity that is human contact that happens when two people are really with, and I mean that sort of capital with each other can't happen because it's being controlled by the device promising something else. And, you know, I've had friends, I've had conversations with friends. Very recently I had a conversation with a friend who in our conversation took about five or six texts during it. This is a dear friend. And it's important, I think, to be honest about that. You know, I, if we're going to be together, I would really prefer you turn off your phone because chances are that person also wishes that were the case. So somebody has to voice, this is not okay with me. This doesn't feel like we're together. Mm -hmm. I could imagine that would take a certain kind of bravery, I would imagine, in certain you know, relationships to, to bring that forward. And yet, and yet what we all really crave is the full attention of another human being. It is so primal. And, you know, the sad thing about all of this is that while we're pretending it's all fine because, you know, wherever we are, we're mostly having conversations with someone who's not in the room. You know, you go to a party these days with millennials and they're all having conversations but with no one in the room. We're <laughs> pretending that this is okay and yet nobody, if you talk to people privately, nobody is really okay with that. So what it, what's happened is that it's become a kind of social awkwardness uh, tool so that when you don't have anyone to talk to or you don't know what to do with yourself, in the past we'd have to figure that out. We'd have to do something about that. But now we don't. We just pretend we're swiping. You know, I have to say, at times it's incredibly part of what makes technology so complicated is that it's both. I appreciate at some of these parents' gatherings, I just pretend I'm on the phone because I don't, I, you know, I also at times just don't want to chit-chat. So it serves that purpose of getting us out of here. But what we really crave at the end of the day is this presence. And it's not happening just by putting the phone down. We're saying something about this relationship. And what I'm seeing with young people, too, is that 
it's very interesting, but in the dating world, you know, they're, they're creating these kind of avatars, these fabulous characters that text and always have something phenomenal to say. And as soon as they're not fabulous, they just drop out of the text. But then when they try and build a relationship that started through these, you know, these avatars, they, it's like they're playing emotional catch up. They, they're not that person yet. And the relationship has skipped a hundred steps. So we're, we're creating these sort of virtual characters that are in relationship. We're, we're texting all this sexy stuff. We're, we're flirting. We're doing that. The relationship is nowhere near that. And then there's this expectation, right, that the relationship and our relationship should always be fun, should always be fabulous. They don't have any of the awkwardness. They don't have the bumps. And if they do, we're more inclined now to just drop out of them. You know, you're talking, Nancy, about how a younger generation are creating avatars online and how that affects their relationships. And you share another really interesting observation in The Power of Off about young people, how you used to ask people, uh, you know, what is your dream for what you want to be when you grow up? And you can share what kinds of answers you're getting today that are different. I thought that was a very curious Mm -hmm. part of the book. Well, when I used to ask, you know, what do you see for your life or that sort of thing, I would often get, I want to play music or I want to help people as a doctor or travel, but it was experience-based. It had to do with how we were going to to live, essentially. And what I hear now is I want to be a brand emperor or I want to be famous, just plain old I want to be famous. And, of course, when you ask famous, or what, they really look at you cockeyed. Like they don't quite understand what that has to do with it. And what I'm seeing is, again, we were talking about identity a moment ago, that while it used to be that, you know, we lived a certain life because we had certain interests or what have you, and then as an organic um, result of that, we were known as that kind of person. So it was sort of inside out. But now what's happened is it's flipped. So we decide what do we want to be known as, and then we go about building a life that will create that. So it's very spooky in that way that what we're seeing is that who we are seen as seems to be replacing what kind of life we want to live. And at the same time, we're seeing a a, a profound value change, I think, in our culture where um, things like mastery, things like uh, experience and wisdom and all of those sort of old school things um, are being replaced by fame. They're really being replaced by who's most popular. That is what we value right now in 2016. The fact that a kid who's, you know, 15 and can do splits on Vine or one of these uh, short video channels, he's idealized, right? This has become what our culture, um, what it supports. So it's, it's it's a very strange time because all those things like craftsmanship, like really knowing uh, your work or, or the brilliance that comes out of thousands of hours in the saddle, if you will, you know, 
these these things are not that important. They're not that valued. So, of course, these kids are saying, I want to be a brand emperor or I want to be Jay-Z or what have you, because that's what we think is important now. And again, our values, um, they're going to probably take my senses. It'll be like this for some time until the emptiness of that um, uh, sort of switches it again. Now, Nancy, as we come to a conclusion, do you think it's fair to say that in your view, you feel that we're at a crisis juncture in our relationship with technology, that the reason you're so passionate about this is because we're really in danger? Or am I overstating it? I think we are, I actually feel quite optimistic is the truth. I have great faith in each person making an individual choice for themselves about whether this is working. Um, What I think is that we have been on a course uh, towards sleep. We have been um, going under anesthesia and um, that has worked for a lot of people. That has been what a lot of people want. At the same time, the difficulty that that technology is creating in the agitation and the difficulty uh, completing all the tasks and the overwhelm is um, it's giving a run for the money uh, for the part of us that's falling asleep, right? We'll fall asleep. I, I do feel human nature will fall asleep, but it's so agitating and it's so difficult to live the way we're living that I think people are waking up to, I don't want to live this way anymore. I don't want to miss my life. I don't want to miss my friends' lives. I don't want to miss my kids' lives. I don't want to have to, you know, lock my phone in the car so I don't use it. I don't want to live like an addict. And so I think we're at this great tipping point where each one of us can make a choice for ourselves moment to moment. We don't need a collective decision here. Moment to moment, as you decided not to use your phone uh, at the red light, there it is right there. If there are a thousand points of those light happening, then we're starting to change. And, and I really do feel that the discomfort of this way of living and the awareness of how emptying it is and how uh, disconnected it makes us feel and um, all of that is making people change, want to change their behavior. Mm-hmm. And then just one final question for you. This show is called Insights at the Edge. And I'm always curious to know what someone's edge is, kind of their growing edge in their life, the challenge that they're currently working with, if you will. And I'm curious, in terms of you and technology and the power of off, what would you say is your current edge? I think the edge that I experience is the edge that I was speaking of a few minutes ago about really getting comfortable and tolerating the open space without the unfilled time without filling it in. So even more than email for me is, you know, I love to learn. I'm very curious is in the spaces where there is 
no object of my attention uh, to just hang out there and not do because I can and not fill it with something interesting, but to get even more comfortable, I would say, with um, that just pure spacious awareness of the need to, the the desire to uh, learn, to fill, to engage in that moment and not act on it, to to be present without an object of my uh, attention. That's what I would say is really where I, where I work. Very good. Very helpful. I've been speaking with Nancy Collier. She's the author of a new book called The Power of Off, The Mindful Way to Stay Sane in a Virtual World. Thank you so much. You've inspired me, and I think you've inspired our listeners to be more on the side of wakefulness in their relationship with technology and their devices. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.